Welcome back to Revelation on Man podcast, a podcast dedicated to bringing you Revelation from the Bible. I'm your host, Justin D. Myers, and thank you for joining me today. Sorry we've been away for a little bit. I uh, was had a fairly busy week two weeks ago, and uh, just I didn't want to release a half-baked episode. I didn't want to release anything that wasn't completely done, and I definitely didn't have all my regular notes done so i decided that maybe we just skip a week sorry for all of those of you who are listening on a bi-weekly basis uh just kind of out of the blue i was really tired last last time i had a chance to record and just didn't get around to it because i didn't get everything finished in time this this job that we're at the new company came in and they've kept us really busy since they took over or at least they've kept me very busy so I seem to have no end of things to do, and uh, it was just time got away from me last week, so I'm sorry about that, guys, and uh, I'm definitely working on it and working on finding rest when I need, you know? Um, that's one of those things that can be hard, especially for people today. We get busy with all sorts of things, and then we forget to rest, and it can really be detrimental to our health. So I'm not going to get too much into uh, you know things that are going on in the world today because I'm sure we'll get into it as we get into the chapter today a little bit more. Um, there's things that definitely kind of allude to things that are happening today, and we will talk about that as we get there. And uh, talking about last chapter, it was a really short chapter. It was Isaiah chapter 4, and it was only six or seven verses. We broke it up into having a study about every single verse basically so this time we're going to go back more to our original format where we have you know a chunk of verses and then we talk about those verses and i've tried to break them up into ways that make the most sense thematically as we talk about them so we will get into that last chapter was about the judgment that was come down on all of israel for their unwillingness to follow god's rules we'll see even more of that today especially in uh how uh, the things that Isaiah is talking about, he is wishing or he is saying will come upon Israel for their disobedience. And then last time we learned that no matter what is going on in our lives, we can always rely on the Lord. We'll get a little bit more of that today, along with stuff that kind of has more relevant, relevant, rev, excuse me, rev, rev. I just can't say that, that word today. It'll make more sense when we get there. How about that? This this section is kind of set up like a poem, and it's self-labeled as a love poem, as we will hear when it runs right into it. But it reads more like a parable. So there's another parable that uh, we will go over as, we, as it, the similarities become more apparent. And the poet is using a vineyard as a metaphor for God's people and nations. So whenever it's talking about this garden or vineyard, it's talking about uh, Israel as a nation, not just uh, trying to be uh, flamboyant with the language. It's It actually has a meaning behind it. Now, the parable that I want you guys to get in mind is the parable of the tenants from Matthew 21, 33 through 41. And that's the one where Jesus is talking about a landlord has this farm and the tenants go there and they don't pay their rent or whatever. And then he sends people to get that, his, his you know, fair share from them. They kill him 
and he does this several times until he sends his own son. And then they think that they're going to kill the son and get the, the inheritance for the thing. And then eventually just completely wipes, like kicks them out, wipes them out from his, his uh, farm. So we'll see that in parts of this parable, this poem that we're going to go over today, that is using very much of some of the same uh, imagery and ideas as we get into it. Now, this first section is really short, just two lines. So starting on Isaiah 5, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My love, one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. So the person writing this, as we know, is Isaiah. And this is from uh, a position of someone who's in, in a right standing with God. As we can see, he's calling God his love. He's calling him, you know, his beloved. And he's saying that he's done all this work to create this vineyard. And he even looked for, you know, good crop to plant in it. But alas, it has uh, not produced the fruit that he wanted. When it's referring to this vineyard, it's crossing that boundary between parable and poem. We see them both used, uh, this kind of garden and, and vineyard imagery whenever it's talking about kind of a fertile place or a place that was made to, you know, for specific things to grow or specific things to thrive. We see that it's, it's using more of the idea of what a farm or a vineyard is, where this place is designed to bring out the best fruits in whatever it is trying to do. So when it's talking about this, it's saying that God, you know, created this, this land for Israel and put Israel together and put it where it is and, you know, create this very fertile place for Israel to thrive. And then come to find out that it was Israel was the bad fruit. They're the ones who produced the bad fruit. So we see that when we are in right standing with God and when we are, you know, carrying out God's will, he will put us in a place that is fertile and we will be able to grow and bear good fruit. And as we can see, even if we aren't, you know, in that same standing, if he places us in a good place, and it's not that we're going to bear, you know, good fruit, we are, as long, if we need to have that initial, you know, kind of dedication to taking care of what God wants us to do. That's what helps us produce good fruit. He will always put us in the place that we will grow best. The, the question is, do we see what it is that God wants us to grow in? It also refers to this, the owner of the land as being the creator. So as we know, uh, God has created everything in this world. So he's the rightful owner. He's, he has the right to do with it as he pleases. So we see that there's there's several places here where it's talking about this owner doing everything that he sh he you know could do in his power that should produce good fruit. You know, he makes the land fertile, he puts up the walls, he keeps out the the bad things and he uh, you know tends to the crops as to the best of his ability. But we see that it's the bad fruit which comes back to what Israel is, because this again is Isaiah, you know, going to Israel and saying, Hey, you guys are doing the wrong things. You're, you're creating these, this, um, poor fruit. You are not following God. You are not worshiping him like you should. And as we can see, 
this is this is one another way that Isaiah is calling out Israel at the time. Now we're going to see a similar metaphor when we get to the potter's metaphor, which I'm sure many people have heard of. And it has the same kind of uh, twist here where it's talking about how he is the creator, so he gets to decide what he's going to do with it. Uh, so this is, again, another you know claim to God being the rightful creator of everything and everyone. And then we see bad fruit in this passage. In the Hebrew, it is a word that can mean grapes, but often means stenches, sticking, rotting fruit. So this word comes up several times whenever it's talking about uh, the bad fruit that Israel has produced when it has not done what God has called them to do. And that's something that we ourselves need to watch out for today is that we're not producing you know, that bad fruit. We're not serving in a way that creates more uh, darkness in the world and stuff like that. Carrying on back in verse 3. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away his hedge I will, and it will be destroyed. I'll break down its wall, and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is a nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he has looked for justice, but saw bloodshed for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. So we can see here right right away in this, it starts calling out the people of Jerusalem and Judah specifically. And of course, it, it explains this whole metaphor that it's talking about, where it says, you know, the vineyard is the nation of Israel and the people of Judah are the vines. And we see that this is his way of, of calling out the bad things that, you know, Israel and Judah have done. And right off the bat here in, in verse 3, he is literally calling to Jerusalem and the people of Judah to judge between me and my vineyard. So he's, he's literally ironically calling them to judge what they have failed in. Again, we see that he is saying that God had done everything right. He, he you know, prepared the soil, cultivated the vines, protected the vineyard. He did all these things to take care of. Israel and they have squandered what he has done for them and have produced bad fruit. Now, agriculture is the backbone of society even today, but back then it was more like, whereas today we have only like 2% of the population that feeds the rest of the population, which I know I'm part of that. Uh, back then it was much more common for, it was like 95% of the population at this time would be responsible for growing or producing their own food in some manner. So we see very few people who are specialized into other things. Most people did garden or kept animals in some manner at this time to help produce food for themselves. So when we see metaphors and in, in things that are agriculturally based, it may be hard for us to understand today as moderners when most people aren't part of agriculture. But back then, the, he was using language and examples that were very common to everyone at the time, and they would understand this. 
And one of these times, whenever we're talking about fertility and, and talking about these gardens and whatnot, we see that God is being, you know, kind of, uh, put up against these other gods of fertility and stuff like that, because some of the most important gods in these times would have been the fertility gods that were in charge of, you know, good crops, good livestock, good, good chance for new children and stuff like that. Kind of these deities of abundance and stuff like that. And uh, we see that a lot of times whenever God is put up against one of these deities, he's doing it better. He's doing it, you know, the right way he's doing it in a way that doesn't require some sacrifice given to him. And one such deity that comes up is Marduk. Uh, he uh, said to planted Babylon like an orchard in their myth and then lamented over never getting any good fruit from her. And this is uh, drawing allusions to that, that myth. And of course saying, you know, much like that God, the man who planted Israel where it was supposed to be has not gotten the fruit. Of course, now God is lamenting over that, but God is also going to take matters into his own hands and, and, you know, re retilt the orchard to, to, uh, reseed it, to get it ready for a new crop. And whenever we see the old Testament compare God to these other deities or vice versa, compare these other deities to God, we, we often see that they make it in a way that God is the true God and all these other mythologies, these other deities are just copycats trying to do exactly what, you know, God himself has done. And of course, this goes all the way back to the Satan himself, who is always trying to copy God and, and do the same thing that God is doing. He's trying to get himself to a position of where God is. Of course, as we know from studying Revelation, that's nigh impossible and it's not going to happen. But we, we see these other deities tend to copy God or some attributes or some traits and try to be the God of that sort of... Uh, you know, niche. And then we see, you know, the old Testament completely, you know, just take these things and say, Hey, you know what? You're that God over there that you think is in charge of that. Yeah, no, he's not really in charge of that. Our God's really in charge of that. So we see often that the old Testament is kind of using these examples that would have been, you know, prevalent in everyone's minds at the time. And then saying, yeah, that is not from this God. That is from our God. And in this structure, we see him removing the hedge and removing all these these protections and everything that he has put up for the vineyard, and now he's letting it, you know, be taken and destroyed. And uh, these hedges that would be planted around vineyards are thick bushes that would make it hard for people and animals to move through. It would often make you know living things choose a different path, and in that would protect whatever you know the vineyard or the farm that you're you put this hedge around. So when it's saying he's removing this hedge and, and he's literally removing the protection and this, the word used here is more, more like a wall and less like a hedge, but it is still the word for hedge, which alludes more towards like a walled city than just a hedge vineyard, which is him taking the protection away from Jerusalem and, and letting them be ravaged by the wild animals of the world, by the, the evils that are out there. And then it talks about briars and thorn bushes. This is, uh, this is usually language that's used to talk about desolate wasteland or the kind of state that Israel will be left in at the time after all this judgment has come to fruition. And of course, Israel or 
or Jerusalem has been destroyed and laid waste to. And briars and thorn bushes are these plants that are just not good for making food, and they're often pokey, and they are hard to deal with, as well as hard to just be around in general. So it's saying that uh, this, this with the state that Israel will be left in after this is going to be hard to be around. It's going to be hard to get anything to grow or to take root in this area again. Continuing on at verse 8, Woe to you who add house to house and join field to field till no space is left, and you live alone on the land. The Lord Almighty has declared in my hearing, Surely the great houses will become desolate. The fine mansions left without occupants. A ten-acre vineyard will produce only a bath of wine. A homer of seed will yield only an ephah of grain. Woe to those who rise early in the morning to run after their drinks, who stay up late at night till they are inflamed with wine. They have harps and lyres at their banquets, pipes, timbrels, and wine. But they have no regard for the deeds of the Lord, no respect for the work of his hands. Therefore, my people will go into exile for lacking, for lack of understanding. Those of high rank will die of hunger, and the common people will be parched with thirst. Therefore, death expands its jaws, opening wide its mouth. Into it will descend their nobles and masses, with all their brawlers and revelers. So people will be brought low, and everyone humbled, the eyes of the arrogant humbled. But the Lord Almighty will be exalted by his justice and the holy God will be proved holy by his righteous acts. Then sheep will graze as in their own pasture. Lambs will feed among the ruins of the rich. So Isaiah starts talking about six woes here, and we see two of them in this first section. And they highlight the way that Israel has failed and the things that Israel has done wrong in the eyes of God. At first woe is talking about how they have accumulated all this land they've accumulated all this wealth they have as i was saying the elite band together and collect all this land and and uh accumulated in ways that is against the laws because in Israel at the time, there was a law that was the land was divided because it was conquered from Canaan and given to Israel, and it was divided to the tribes in a specific way, so that if someone forfeited their land for whatever reason, they sold it for a loan, they you know had to they couldn't afford it anymore, whatever it was, or they sold it to buy something else. It was supposed to always come back to them at the fifty year of jubilee, and uh, this was a thing that reminded Israel that the land was not theirs, it was God's, and he could give it to whoever he seemed fit. So we see that at this time, I don't think one jubilee had ever been celebrated or, or uh, done in the time Israel had ever uh, had the land of Canaan. So we see that rich people are accumulating land and houses and building these massive houses, and they are not giving it back to the people who should have the ground and they are accumulating wealth in very greedy ways and making sure that they get the most out of the people below them and they abuse them in ways and, and give them loans that are exorbitant and stuff like that. And since they've you know, refused to keep this law, they give forfeit the land because it was part of the contract that God made with Israel that when they 
inherited this land, they would have to, you know, abide by this law. And that would mean that they could keep it. But unfortunately they never, you know, did the Jubilee or they, they sold it and borrowed it in ways that were against the law. And therefore in God's eyes, that makes it forfeit. So they will have to uh, forfeit the land. Then we get into the farm yields. And there's some language here, you know, the vineyard that only produces a bath of wine and the, you know, the little bit of grain that makes even less grain. What it roughly is trying to say here in a way that we might understand it better is it's only going to roughly produce 10% of the initial investment. So this is uh, not even like 10% return on what you invested. This is 90% loss on initial investment. So the, the vineyards and the farms in this area were to not be able to produce nearly anything. The second woe is focused on people who have made an idol of partying and flamboyancy and drinking and stuff like that. We see that they didn't properly worry about the real political, social, and religious issues. They were more worried about their you know, appetites and their thirsts, and their punishment would be that they would hunger and thirst but not be able to satisfy that. And Isaiah always comes back to pride as being a fundamental issue of sin, where it's always the pride of man that causes many of the sins. And I can understand that, you know, many of the things that we think we should be doing or the things we think we can get away with doing often come back to a sense of pride, like, oh, I can do that, or I should be able to do that, or some sort of entitlement of pride, you know. And then at the end, it takes a you know a lighter turn where it says you know the God's sheep will come and graze on the 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 f- grasses and whatnot of, in the ruin. And of course, this is Yahweh is exalted when people enact justice and righteousness, or when God Himself uh, you know enacts that justice and righteousness, He will be exalted. Last section, hang in there, verse eighteen. Woe to those who draw sin along with cords of deceit and wickedness as with cart ropes. To those who say, let God hurry, let him hasten his work, so we may see it. The plan of the Holy One of Israel, let it approach, let it come into view, so we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and champions at mixing drinks, who acquit the guilty for a bribe, but nigh justice to the innocent. Therefore, as tongues of fire lick up straw, as dry grass sinks down in flames, so their roots will decay, and their flowers blown away like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord Almighty, and spurned the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, the Lord's anger burns against his people, his hand is raised, and he strikes them down. The mountains shake, and the dead bodies are like refuse in the streets. Yet for all this, his anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. He lifts up a banner for distant nations. He whistles for those at the ends of the earth. Here they come, swiftly and speedily. So we see the third woe here is the people who are uh, drawn sin, who draw sin along like cords of deceit and wickedness, the cart ropes, the people who are, you know, mocking God and saying, yeah, let the end times come, let him come, let his kingdom come. Let us see what what he can do, sort of thing. It's these people who are who are 
leading people astray in ways of things like, oh, you can do that. You can get away with that. You can, why, why is this a bad thing? Why should we do that? You know, why shouldn't we do that sort of thing? This kind of attitude that we see a lot, especially today where people are saying, well, why can't I do that? Why shouldn't I be able to do that? And, uh, the only answer is because that's not what God's plan is. So this, that's the third woe. And we see the fourth woe, which is much like the third woe. Only these people are those who call evil good and good evil. So these are, we see a lot of this today where there's people who say that, you know, you know, following God is square and you shouldn't follow a made up sky daddy or whatever it is that they have to say, you know, and, and then they go and turn around and say, Oh, well, this is okay. We can do this. And this is, this is right to do. And this is righteous. And this is, you know, they call evil things good and good things evil. And we see that a lot today, especially in the way things are going you know, day to day. And, not not trying to get into any politics here or anything, but this is something that we we struggle with as a society, especially in America. You know, we we see the people turning away from the light and championing darkness in ways that is just ridiculous these days. And something that I guess is not un, unheard of in history. So, as far as is it worse than it ever has been? I'm not a hundred percent sure about that. We definitely are dealing with this in many ways today. And we have the fifth woe. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. And I'm sure we've all met people and I'm sure we've all been that person who's, you know, thought better of themselves or thought they were smarter than they actually were or thought they knew something about something that they really didn't. You know, we've, we've all been there. We've all seen that. And, uh, this, this is just one of those things kind of, reminds us to be humble, you know, when we don't know the answer to something, it's better to ask questions than just pretend we know the answers because the minute we run into someone who actually knows the answers, they could, you know, really lay us low. And then the sixth woe was talking about those who are drinking all the time and, and acquit the guilty for a bribe and deny justice to the innocent. And it's talking, it's literally using uh, words here like heroes in, in in very unheroic sort of things and making this kind of irony very prevalent in what it's saying and just pointing out like these guys make as heroes but they are they are doing terrible things even though they you know pose themselves as heroes or they, they're worshipped as heroes in the society so we see that we see this is mostly talking about corruption. This is talking about people who become, who've, you know, raised to higher places in life and, and have become corrupt by that. And then in this last section after the woes is talking about how the fires of judgment will begin to burn up the, you know, the, the bad and the, the unrighteous, the unjust, all the things that starts to, to turn everything to ash, the evil and the, the terrible things of the world will just be burnt away. And we've talked about how, uh, you know, God is this fire that purifies the things that, that we've done in life and all the hay and, and chaff and straw and everything will be burnt away and only the precious 
metals will be left behind. And the precious metals, of course, being the things we've done for God, the things we've done with God, the things that we've done because of God. Those will be the things that are left. Everything else will be just dust, dust and ashes. And then we see God's hand being outstretched. This is often used as a metaphor for something where God's directly having, you know, uh, influence on that or directly causing something of that matter to happen. And then he also summons the other nations in this time of judgment. And in this case, he uses them as the tools of his judgment. He uses them to, to watch over Israel and, and, you know, create the havoc and punishment that he has, you know, judged that they needed. And we've seen this in Daniel where, you know, I, Israel was punished for their disobedience by Assyria or Babylon coming in and taking over and making them not a nation anymore, but a vassal. And then the wording in here, it's using, when it's talking about the army that's, that's coming to, to Israel, that is using very supernatural terms for it, that it's faster and swifter than any human army would be. And of course, he is talking about the Assyrian army that is coming to take over Jerusalem and subjugate them to Assyria. And that is what happened soon after Isaiah was, you know, prophesying that this all this stuff would happen. So what's the takeaway for today? I think even when the world is twisting good and evil and trying to lure us from the path the Lord has set before us, we can always turn to him. And no matter what we struggle with, we will find comfort in the Lord and his will for us. And that's just something we need to keep in mind, you know, whenever you're struggling, like, do I do, what do I need to do? What's the right thing to do? It's just, we turn to God and say, you know, what does he want me to do? What's the right thing? What's the right path? And we just, we stay strong in what the Lord has sent us to do. Even when the world is, you know, telling us we're wrong for thinking that or doing it in a different way than the world would see fit. So, thank you for listening to the Revelation On Demand podcast. Please like, share, and subscribe wherever you catch podcasts from. Please, if you like what we're doing, share this with a friend, family member, or someone from your church. This is a completely private venture and receive no funding from any sources. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns, please feel free to contact me at revelationondemand at gmail.com. God bless, and see you next time. Mm-hmm.